what we try to do on our side is get as much of that 700 million attracted to a risk as possible. And so we have excess capacity. We can use that to try to drive the premium down because we're not going to have a single underwriter writing, unless we're talking, you know, risks under like $10 million or so. You typically don't have just one underwriter, right? No one underwriter is going to come in and say, oh, I'm going to insure $200 million. Mm -hmm. So you need to work with multiple underwriters. And there's roughly 35 to 40 that globally that, that underwrite this type of thing. And they'll each have a, a maximum capacity line of, you know, anywhere, say, between 10 and 15 up to, you know, a few of the big guys might have 50 to $75 million that they can deploy. And so what you try to do is build a syndicate, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. And you get each, each underwriter. Um, so while they're all working from the same policy form in terms of they have the same declarations, the same insuring agreement, the same loss definitions. What will be different is they're going to give us their own terms individually. So that means how much capacity they're willing to put up and what their rate for that capacity is going to be. So we try to create a bit of a, an auction, if you will, and attract as much capacity and then try to drive that to the lowest uh, possible so that the, the client at the end of the day gets the uh, composite rate of, of that capacity that was offered. It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project. This is Jason Canigan, the host and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I'm here with Bob Weirty, who is with uh, Marsh, which is a space insurance brokerage, among other things. Thanks for being here, Bob. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Jason. You bet. Bob and I have talked a little bit before, and we went through some uh, some information about the space insurance industry, and we both thought, wow, it would be really cool to get this out there uh, for just anybody you know members of the public in that so we do have some confidentiality um, standards for data sources so we'll be able to share general trends and indicators but not get into specific sources and that kind of thing so bob how did you get into uh, the space insurance business that's not something that just pops off the assembly line no it's 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 not and so i i actually come to the space insurance industry from a a, a bit of a circuitous or convoluted background. So um, I'm actually, by by education, I have two engineering degrees, both uh, in electrical engineering. And I started my career more or less in um, in radar engineering. So I did airborne radar for, you know, fighter jets and, and other uh, tactical uh, military uh, assets. And eventually, um, the same company I was working for Hughes at the time had a commercial satellite division, and, and I eventually moved over to the commercial satellite uh, world. And it was um, it was night and day from radar, where the radar you were dealing with exotic and you know leading edge uh, technology. The satellite was more tried and true, but much more commercially focused, which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the the, the fact that we weren't dealing with government contracts anymore mm. and dealing with, with actual clients and on an international uh, scale, right? A lot of uh, the first program I actually got involved with was was basically for a Japanese satellite. So I got to travel to Japan and I thought, wow, this is a whole different world, you know, than, uh, than hold up in some uh, uh, some secure facility working on some, some uh, exotic radar program. So, um, you know, I just, I've been in the uh, commercial satellite industry ever since. And so I did a few years of um, satellite um, payload system engineering. You know, I, my engineering degrees, as I said, were electrical and concentrated in, um, in the masters in, in RF engineering. So knew a lot about, uh, you know, things like waveguides and antennas and, and high power 
uh, transmitters and, and things of that nature. And um, eventually moved from the design side, you know, I had gotten involved a little bit with um, with business development as well while I was at Hughes. But I moved into uh, the uh, the other side, if you will, the owner operator side. So the the companies that would buy uh, satellite from uh, from uh, from a Hughes or a SSL or a Lockheed, and you know, operate it for obviously for for a business case. So first company I went to was called Loral Orion. And I worked worked with uh, them. They were buying a, a satellite from Hughes and also from up, up the coast, up in in, uh, in SSL. And uh, so, you know, was part of a small team that uh, oversaw the um, you know the contractors there. And um, at that time, I started to to lay the groundwork to get a business degree. So I ended up going back and getting an MBA. And uh, as part of that that uh, employment with Laurel Ryan, I also moved back back from the West Coast to the East Coast, where I originally am from, and uh, took a sort of a promotion, took a job doing capacity management and link budget. So, you know, more on the, the use side of, of, of the satellite rather than just, you know, the construction and oversight of, uh, you know, contract management of the, of the, uh, the, the production. So uh, that, that gave me some uh, insight into basically, you know, um, how, to, how to work with our sales guys and maximize the, uh, the capacity of the satellite, you know, to maximize the revenue, and 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 uh, so got got some sort of practical uh, initiation there into into uh, looking at, uh, you know, uh, allocating the, the the frequency and the power and band with uh, in, in the most efficient manner for for our clients, and also, you know, working with the uh, with the with the folks in the uh, in the in the ground station areas, looking at, hey, you know, is anybody this actually happens, you know, that, that people might be putting up rogue carriers and, and you know, robbing power or, or bandwidth from, from the satellite. So you have to kind of weed all that out and figure out who's who's up, who's paying, who's not paying, you know. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, and uh, but that that company ended up being absorbed by by Skynet. And so I decided to move on to a to a different, uh, uh, a, you know, did not want to move up into the to the New Jersey area. So I, I took a job with um, Pan Amsat was actually buying some satellites at Orbital. So I moved back in into the uh, into the field office, you know, contract management role, uh, while I f- finished up getting my uh, my MBA in finance and international business. And once I had had that, and the satellites were out the door at Orbital for for Pan Amsat, I moved into sales and um, selling satellites. I was working for Alcatel, uh, which then became Talus because Alcatel sold their their interest in uh, Alcatel Atlantis Space to Talus, so it became space. And one day I just, I got a call actually from a former Pan Amsat colleague who said that Marsh was looking for somebody like me because they wanted an, an engineer with sales experience. Mm-hmm. So I called them up and I've been, you know, they said, we like you, we're going to hire you. And here I am over 11 years later in the insurance world. So, Very cool. Kind and of a I, combination love of, yeah, yeah. I love that oh, combination of, of business and technical <laughs> expertise. So yeah, that's uh, it's not super common out there. And yes, folks, there is a company called Skynet. <laughs> that wasn't a slip <laughs> of the tongue. <laughs> the Terminators are coming. Uh, so I, I, you know, you're one of the first people that I uh, successfully connected with when I really started getting into the space field, and it's not that long ago. So I really appreciate your friendliness and willingness to educate uh, a newbie like me coming in here. And it's it's it? it's a different world. It is, as I say, it's it's a fascinating business. It's actually, um, you know, it's interesting. You, 
you, you, I, I've been as you, as I just went through, many different companies had many different roles, and uh, just one kind of a uh, humorous uh, anecdote. I, I was in a meeting one time with uh, with uh, a boss. One of my, this was a, at a previous company, and everybody else in the room knew me, you know, and they were all at different companies from different companies. And as we walked out, he starts laughing and he looks at me and he says, "Can't you keep a job?" <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> I, I had worked for so many different right. uh, different companies so right. so it is it is interesting a lot of times uh, you know um you you work for people or with people and you know you just never know where they're going to show up in the future mm -hmm. you know just uh it, it, as i said it's kind of a small industry and people move around a lot and so it's 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 one of those where you you, you know make good connections and mm -hmm. you 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 keep them because you just never know how uh how your paths are going to cross again in the future right so I, you know, I would imagine few people have thought about space insurance or satellite insurance. Um, let's get into exactly what that means because there are different stages of insuring a satellite. And as time has gone on, I mean, this, this field has been around for at least 20 years. Uh, the, the idea of what stages should be insured and which should kind of be left alone is tough luck. Uh, if something fails in them has changed. So can you cover that for us? Give us a summary of what those stages are like. Yeah, so you could you could you could look at it as starting um in the manufacturer's facility where the satellite's being, you know, designed and built. So um that would be typically covered under the property policy of of the manufacturer, right? You know, it's it's work in progress. It's you know, so um and then you know once once it's completed, it's got to get from the factory to the launch site. Mm -hmm. So there'll be some shipment to the the launch uh, you know to the launch site from the factory, and that could be you know if it's a U.S. manufacturer launching in a in a from the U.S. I mean that could be you know by truck, it could be by rail, it could be by aircraft. I mean if it, and especially if you're going to a foreign uh, foreign launch facility like. Uh, let's say on an Ariane out of uh, French Guiana, it would typically be uh, an air freight uh, type of shipment. And, you know, that would be covered again, it could either be covered uh, under a manufacturer's policy, um, uh, property policy, or there could be a, a transit uh, type of policy. Hmm. And then once it gets to the launch site, you know, you don't just like strap it onto the rocket and go, <laughs> there's some processing that has to take place. Um, you know, you'll want to check the satellite to make sure that it um, survived, you know, arrived in good health. Um, you got to fuel it, you made it, and then you know mount the the, the spacecraft and, and and put it in the fairing and get that onto the onto the launch vehicle. So all of that's kind of known as pre pre ignition or pre launch type of of cover. So um, you know there's there's markets that that uh, that will will do the transit and and pre ignition type of uh, type of cover. And then typically or traditionally, at that point is um, uh, either in uh, intentional ignition or launch is when the um, is when the, uh, the the space insurance kicks in and uh, so you know we'll write our policies typically to attach at either like I said intentional ignition or launch and there's a, a bit of a nuance there so okay. uh, a liquid rocket you know you can you can send the ignition command and the, and the, the, the um, rockets will start to uh, to fire up, but before you throttle up to full thrust, you know you might do some computer checks and things like that. And so there is a possibility to still have what they call a terminated ignition. In mm -hmm. which case, if there's a terminated ignition, once the pad is declared safe by the the range safety officer, 
then the um, the risk would would transfer back to the to the pre the pre ignition policy, whether it was a, a special transit uh, pre ignition or on the manufacturer uh, you know property or uh, under the manufacturer uh, transit policy. Um, if it's at launch, you you take that all out because it's always with it's always with the, the pre launch. Uh, uh, you know, uh, insurer or, or insurers right up until the actual launch occurs, and um, and then from there forward is is all, is all the space. So you would have the launch phase can be covered. Um, you can have uh, post sep so post separation of the satellite um, is you know uh, the transfer orbit to get to its final orbit and and in orbit operations. All of that can be insured, um, and then. Typically, that's done on a launch plus one year basis, and then you can have some annual renewal policies, which are typically done on a, on a one year basis. Some markets will write longer term where you can get launch plus n years, where n, depending on the market, could be three, five, or uh, even up to 15 years. Uh, so you, you would get the full, and 15 is a typical lifetime for like a, a geostationary type satellite. Um, so you could, you know, you can, you can kind of get, get Get the gamut depending on on your budget and what you're looking for, um, and so part of what we do is we work with the client to define what those loss parameters are going to look like in the insurance policy. So I mean, obviously, a launch failure is pretty uh, you know um, pretty pretty obvious, right? Either the launch vehicle completely fails or it gets you into some some orbit that's useless. Um, due to some underperformance or maybe the separation mechanism doesn't work, uh, things like that. But once a satellite is separated and it's flying, now you know you could you could have a whole gamut of failures, right? From a complete mm-hmm. total loss, where you know I don't know solar solar rays don't deploy, the uh, the the, um, the the satellite's own propulsion system that's used to to get it from the where the launch vehicle lets it off to its final orbit doesn't work. A, a whole lot of things could could go wrong. Um, but there's also the idea of a partial loss, where maybe I lose some transponders or, uh, you know, whatever instrument, you know, that, I've, that I'm putting up on that satellite that, that I'm putting up to, to make money or to do whatever the mission is, um, is either partially working or, or, you know, not working completely. So what we'll do is we'll sit down with the client ahead of time and we develop based on what the mission is and, and the satellite, uh, you know, payload. Uh, we'll come up with some loss definitions, which typically involves some sort of equation. So, you know, that uh, with my engineering background, that sort of aids that as well. I can, you know, really work with the with the underwriters who most of who have either on staff uh, technical folks or, you know, uh, have consultants that they work with that, that have a, a technical background. So we work with them to, to come up with something that uh, is reasonable for their business and their risk, uh, their risk tolerance. And you know, put put together you know uh, definitions, and we actually so each of these policies is unique. You know, we call them it's bespoke, so it's a very unique policy. Um, and and then we have to go and educate the underwriters, right? So we 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 um, we work with the client. We get you know, here's what the this policy is going to look like. Here's what the loss definitions look like. Here's the amount of insurance we need. And you know, so we put a whole policy wording together. We and then we go start negotiating with the underwriters to to get that. Uh, put in place. And so we can get into the mechanics of that a little bit later. Um, so like I said, once that launch policy has expired, the, the operator may decide he wants to have an annual renewable or, you know, he may want to insure into the future his, his in-orbit uh, operations of that satellite. So that's typically going to be done 
um, like I said, on an annual basis, and it will be subject to a health review. So, you know, as part of the underwriting information that you have to provide to the insurers, they're going to look at what's the health status of that satellite. So if you've lost redundancies, and it, like um, typically you'll launch a satellite with, with some extra stuff, if you will, a few extra transponders, a few extra receivers, so that, you know, you can lose things and, and still maintain full capability, right? You, you, you know, because you're you're up there for a, for a long time and space is a hostile environment. And even though you're designing for operating uh, in, in space, there's still lots that can go wrong. So you, you want to, um, and, and they're not repairable, right? You, mm-hmm. As of now, nobody can go up and repair. So you carry extra extra equipment. So, but if, if, if you've had some some issues or anomalies and now I've consumed my, my spares um, and, you know, to the point where maybe I have a single point failure, the, the underwriters will probably, uh, uh, request or demand an exclusion for that um so you know in their mind so basically on paper they're going to make the satellite you know perfect if you will right they're going to reinstate margins they're going to reinstate um redundancies if, if if they're down to the point where you know um there's no margin to a loss with the next loss right so for them having to pay so the next loss there's so the the underage always going to want to have some some sort of protection now if i had gotten the long-term policy i would pay more but and while the underwriters would still need to see um, on a on an ongoing basis the the updated health status they they're locked in right they mm-hmm. they said all right we're going to give you 15 years or 10 years or five years of cover so during the period of that cover they can't you know renegotiate the, the terms of it so if if a single point failure were to have developed they could not you know. Um, and and then and then that single point failed, and there was a, a failure for the satellite. Then they you know they they would have to pay. Uh, whereas the, the if there was any additional in orbit insurance that that was then procured to make up the difference for what was bought on long term and and the value of the satellite that uh, was being insured, uh, those guys would probably have had an exclusion. In fact, there was a very uh, real example of this at the end of 2018, where a, an optical satellite had a um, had an issue. Um, it had at the time of renewal, it had a single point failure, and there had been some. There was some long term cover. So, but the long term cover wasn't sufficient for the the value of the satellite. So they topped up, right? They they bought some additional insurance on an annual basis. But the the insurance they bought on an annual basis had the exclusion for the single point failure that had developed, whereas the long term didn't. Well, sure enough, that that the the uh, the component that was a single point failure failed. And the, uh, the annual, the guys who had written on an annual basis with the exclusion had no, no, no they, you know, they were not liable for any claim, but the long-term guys who, who had written it at launch, you know, and could not mm-hmm. impose such uh, an exclusion ended up uh, having to pay. So that was, that was quite uh, something. Manufacturers may also have incentives. There might be some incentives in the contract that says either on a warranty payback basis or uh, a holdback where the, uh, the customer says, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you over the next, you know, three, four, even maybe over the lifetime, there might be some percentage of the contract, let's say typically no more than 10% that that's held back. And, um, or as I said, in a warranty payback where the, the manufacturer gets the money up front, but, there'll be some criteria laid out in the, in the contract that says if, if the satellite doesn't perform, you know, 
first back or perform nominally, then there's some that, you know, there's some formula in the contract that, that indicates how much money is going to have to be paid back to the um, to the customer. So that th those can those can be insured as well. And then there's the the liability insurance. Uh, liability on the on the launch side is is uh, typically it's 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 provided by the launch service provider, and then they just flow down uh, to to everybody in the contract chain. So there's a, a blanket protection. Uh, but in orbit uh, liability, that would be up to the um, the owner operator, the the the, 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 you know, the the company that's putting the satellite in orbit mm -hmm. uh, to buy. And typically, that is not procured unless it is required by uh, a government type regulation. So if you're launching, uh, if if your satellite is um, you know registered or licensed for uh, a, a nation state, that, and this all goes back to um, the, uh, the the outer space treaties from the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. If you're, you know, so the nation state is is uh, would would be dictated to be liable. So if you're launching from a from a, a country uh, that you know uh, requires you to have in orbit liability, your, your your satellite's registered in that in that country, you would you would tend to uh, to buy it. So, um, but most countries don't, and a lot of uh, owner operators are not carrying in orbit liability insurance. Mm -hmm. In case it crashes into somebody else. So anybody just listening to us and going, wait, what outer space treaties? Uh, I did an interview with space lawyer Christopher Johnson of uh, the Secure World Foundation where he covered this stuff. And nation states are liable for the actions that their members take, <laughs> the individuals. So, uh, so that's what he was just talking about there. Now, Bob, let's assume that somebody doesn't understand how insurance works and take a quick step back here. So there are organizations out there with lots of money and they want to make mm -hmm. a return on their investment. And those right. we're calling underwriters and they have a pool of money. If you add it all together, it changes year to year. But right now, how much is it in total approximately? So I would say right now, approximately on a per risk basis uh, for launch, there's uh, uh, I'd say between 700 and 750 million uh, capacity available. Okay, so there's so, this amount I mean, of money, about 700 million dollars floating around out there that they want to <laughs> make a return on their investment on, and they have just for space launches and that right now. The launch failure rate of, for launch vehicles, which is the rocket explodes basically, taking out everything inside of it, including the satellite, is about 6%. It's been historically that for, for quite a long time. So this does happen, and we'll get into a case uh, in this past year where a couple of, of bad incidents have happened. So uh, the manufacturers will come to you and say, hey, can we get some help with, uh, with insuring this thing? You say yes, not for the the uh, manufacturing or the transportation phase. And I've seen stuff come down river barges, right? Launch vehicles and that uh, recently. Mm -hmm. But the moment that it's on the launch pad and is, is going to lift off and they've pressed that ignition button and it is actually taking off, that's when the space insurance kicks in. And so you will take those requirements that you have created that you say it's a custom agreement, right? A custom um, insurance agreement that you've worked out with your client, the manufacturer, and then you take that to the underwriters and say, okay, all you folks who have $700 million in total to invest, who wants to um, insure this, right? And get paid a premium in, in the hopes that this will not explode or there won't be problems with the satellite uh, after launch. And 
So, uh, so generally, gen- gen- well, generally, Jason, that that's yeah. correct. A few things. So, the seven hundred is is what we would say a theoretical maximum. So that would be everybody putting mm-hmm. down their their maximum line, which never happens. And if 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 uh, that's required, there's going to be some some big premiums because they know mm-hmm. you know you need you need all the capacity they have. So typically, I think right now um, the largest single you know of a single uh, entity. A single satellite on a launch vehicle has been in the the 400 plus range, but you could also, you know, have dual launches like the Ariane is 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 known to to be able to launch multiple, you know, two two large, relatively large satellites uh, at the same time, mm-hmm. and um, you know those could could add up to you know to in the five to 600 million range as well. So those tend to get pretty pretty expensive because you're you're asking for people to put down very large lines. And um, they'll, which they'll do if if they're comfortable with the, the launch vehicle. It's got a lot of heritage, and mm-hmm. the, the satellite manufacturer is known, and again has 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 a lot of heritage. So um, you know, and then typically the client is not the manufacturer; it is mm-hmm. the it is the entity buying the satellite from the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Now we do represent manufacturers because, as I said, they they could have some incentives, um, and while. As a space insurance broker, I don't really deal with the the property or transit that much. Right. Um, there are other brokers within within Marsh and within our competitors that work on those phases as well. So we you know we can provide a you know as a as a as a corporate entity, we can certainly provide a broad spectrum of of risk management uh, for for the client. Now on the smaller side, what we're seeing, mm-hmm. and especially in the wake of a uh, of a pre-launch incident several years ago that really upended a, a lot of the pre-launch market because it was a, a single, the single largest loss in that market and in the Marine, because that's typically written in the Marine market, um, single largest uh, loss in the Marine market in quite a long time. Uh, and it pretty much wiped out about, about 20 years of premium because um, there had been an incident with a launch vehicle prior to uh, to launch, um, this particular vehicle is doing what they call a hot fire test. It's a short duration test to um, just ensure the, the the engines work. And to save schedule, they were doing this with the customer's satellite on top of the launch vehicle. So they're out at the launch pad, um, and what, what happened was a fueling incident. They were actually fueling the rocket for this hot fire test, and something went wrong, and there was an explosion, and huge huge loss. And I think a lot of the uh, underwriters in the marine market um, didn't fully appreciate the, you know, maybe they didn't fully appreciate the risk they were taking or fully understand um, the risk. Um, uh, but certainly it was something that, uh, that, that caused a huge, a huge loss. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, that has really sent ripples through that, that market. And I think we're still, you know, still recovering there. So what's happened is that at least for some of the smaller risks, space markets are willing to look at maybe covering some of that, some of that transit and pre-launch work as well. So we have on uh, for uh, some of these, you know, what we'll call new space or small sats, uh, a few markets coming out with um, like what we'll, we'll term a seamless cover, where we'll pick up the transit from the manufacturer and all the pre-launch and 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 the launch of the satellite. But the amount of capacity that's there is, you know, right now is 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 uh, you know maybe a few tens of millions at the most, and um, 
you know, so it's not it's not sufficient for the big you know the big guys that are in the, mm-hmm. the hundreds of millions of dollars of, of satellites. And you know, and again, it's 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 an ongoing development within within the insurance world to try to you know um, you know uh, react if you will or proactively um, you know find solutions to to um, situations that arise where. They, any markets that have traditionally underwritten a certain risk are now a little more reluctant to do so um, based on, you know, based on some incidents that have happened. Right. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. Yeah, and let's get into a couple of those incidents that happened in the last year and talk about some trends. Uh, Pareto's law is totally in effect here. A small number of launches uh, have have much of the capacity tied up in them. And when one or more of those fail, that negatively impacts the, the whole thing. So, uh, so what has happened in the last year or so that, that has impacted? Well, we certainly have had some losses. So just, and I think to lay the groundwork for this, we should go back to your your prior Mm -hmm. question about how does insurance work. And so insurance, right, is, 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 is the losses of the few are absorbed by, by the many, right? So there's actuarial tables and insurance companies know exactly, all right, we, we can predict with pretty high accuracy, you know, what our losses are going to be for homeowners or for auto or, you know, for things like this property, and so, you know, they have a, a good a good basis on which to set a premium. And uh, but you don't have that with space, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't. There's just not sufficient numbers of of launches, and and uh, you know, uh, there's a constant change in technology. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's it's even hard because you you know you might you might advance the, um, the 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 launch vehicle or even the even heritage satellites. Um, would would you know every once in a while you, you would probably inject some new technology in there and mm-hmm. so that would sort of reset the, the baseline in terms of if you were trying to do this on an actuary basis so it's more so what we call cash flow underwriting so about that 700 million i i talked about before you know the insurance companies have have that and the reason they're willing to underwrite you know a space which is basically a catastrophic type loss right it's mm-hmm. one it's short tail um, you know, you have a launch event which happens in you know hours at the most, right, yeah. between launch and separation of of the satellite, or maybe up to one year, right? We said launch plus one year, but you you know, um, so you know it's 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 not a you know super long exposure, but it's also completely uncorrelated with all their other risks, right? You know, whether there's tornadoes or or uh, fires or you know other lines of business, space is something that's um, 
uh, uncorrelated. So it helps, you know, in terms of managing the overall risk of their portfolio. And it, you know, it brings in, um, it brings in decent, you know, decent, uh, a premium rate. Um, so it's, it's what we call a cash flow underwriting. So what we try to do on our side is, is, you know, get as much of that 700 million attracted to a risk as possible. And so we have excess capacity. And so we can use that to try to drive the premium down because we're not going to have a single underwriter writing, unless we're talking, you know, risks under like $10 million or so. Um, you typically don't have just one underwriter, right? No one underwriter is going to come in and say, oh, I'm going to insure $200 million. Mm-hmm. So you need to work with multiple underwriters. And there's roughly 35 to 40 that globally mm-hmm. that, that underwrite this type of thing. And they'll They'll each have a, a maximum capacity line of, you know, anywhere, say, between 10 and 15 up to, you know, a few of the big guys might have, you know, 50 to 75 uh, million dollars um, that they could that they can deploy. And so, you know, what you try to do is build a, um, uh, a syndicate, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you, you know, you get each each underwriter. Um, so while they're all working from the same policy form in terms of, you know, they have the same declarations, the same insuring agreement the same loss definitions, what will be different is they're going to give us their own terms individually. So that means, you know, how much capacity they're willing to put up and what their rate for that capacity is going to be. So we try to create a bit of a, an auction, if you will, and, um, you know, attract, you know, as much capacity and then try to drive that to the lowest uh, possible so that the, the client at the end of the day gets the uh, composite rate of, of that uh, that capacity that was offered. So, you know, to the extent that, that there's excess capacity in the market, that helps, uh, you know, helps us drive the, the premium down. So the market kind of goes in a cycle and it's kind of humorous because when I joined Marsh in 2008, I was told, which was true, that the market soft and it's, it's in a softening cycle. Well, it took over 10 years for that cycle to, to start to harden because, you know, the, the, uh, the, the overall experience had been um, quite positive. And so even though overall premiums were dropping, the overall market premium was dropping, um, you know, losses hadn't really occurred to the point where there was some pain. But now in the last couple of years, premium, uh, the total market premium has, has dropped to the point where it is um, not sufficient for a single large loss. Mm. So um, it's, you might say, um, maybe not not totally rationally priced. And so we did have some some big losses in, in 2019. Starting at the end of 2018, there was a, a big loss, which is the one I had alluded to earlier with the uh, satellite that had a single point failure. And we had um, we had a launch vehicle that had had um, over 10 successful uh, flights, I think 14 successful flights. And then all of a sudden it uh, on the 15th, it, it failed. So if you're looking at that from a failure rate, you go from 0% to 7.5% on one flight. And, um, and that was, and that happened to be over $400 million uh, loss. And so that was the, I think Huge. the largest single loss in the, uh, in the industry at that point. And then there was a, a, a additional failure um, on a Chinese launch. Uh, and a lot of that had been insured uh, into the, uh, what I'll call the Western, you know, insurance, the tip, the, the, the markets that we normally deal with, the ones out of London, US and, and, and continental Europe. Um, you know, the Chinese retained a bunch, but uh, they also reinsured a bunch out. And then subsequent to that, there's been another failure. Um, don't know all the parameters behind that yet, but it looks like it could be um, 
it could be uh you know a fairly significant loss in the in the you know in the maybe perhaps 200 million range don't you know don't just don't know yet exactly what it's going to be but um it's it's in terms of uh, percentage of that satellite loss it's probably at a at a minimum of 50% loss uh, of that particular satellite but again that's you know that's that's nothing that uh, that is uh is known yet, right? It's just known that there's there's been a loss. So you know, all of these add up to a to a pretty big a pretty big loss. Well, I think in total, I think we're looking at something over over 800 million if you add all these losses up. And and the market premium was you know maybe a little over 400 in in you know round terms. So um and 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 you know over the last few years that the you know as I said the, the market premium has been coming down. There's been several years uh, in the last three, four years that uh, losses have exceeded premium or been right around what the premium is. So underwriters, um, you know, have, have, have reacted. One of the large um, well-known underwriters uh, basically pulled out of the space market and that took about 40 million with them. So, you know, roughly 10% of, of the total capacity went, uh, went with them. Um, and uh, we'll find out. Um, in, in the new year or coming, uh, and then, you know, the, the underwriters typically renew their, their capacity, especially if they're, you know, not, um, you know, they may have, you know, what we call managing general agents that would, that would have, uh, capacity from various, uh, various underwriters behind them. And so they would tend to renew those agreements or those treaties on a, on an annual basis. And, and so we'll find out what, what capacity we have going forward. Um, and then, you know, they're willing, again, their willingness to deploy it and on what terms, um, you know, because I think, you know, after the last year, for sure, a lot of these guys have much more scrutiny from management. Um, it's like, hey, what are we doing here? You know, and because, uh, as I said, it's, it tends to be catastrophic uh, type insurance. And so when the losses happen, they are big. And, um, you know, and, and if the overall premium is, is not sufficient, uh, you, you're going to get you're going to get somebody's attention. So mm -hmm. that's um, does that answer your question? Yes. <laughs> so okay. capacity will be decreasing and yeah. rates will be going up. That that's the that yeah, so I think that's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see a, a bit of a contraction. Now how big of a contraction in capacity, don't know. But certainly rates are, are gonna go up. Just on some of the initial in orbit uh placements that we've done, um we're seeing rate increases of uh one hundred to one hundred and fifty percent. Now that might be the initial knee jerk and we're hoping into the new year if if, if uh, things start to settle out that that you know that will start to rationalize a little bit more certainly not going to go back to, to where it was prior to uh the, the losses of this year but we're just hoping to you know that the uh that the dislocation will start to settle out and and uh, we'll get you know start start seeing a, a bit more of a of a downward trend or a bit more of a norm and and less you know less of this uh spike spikiness <laughs> Right. And as you pointed out with that, that big, was it Vega, uh, the big launch failure, you can have a success uh, story of, of a number of launches in a row and then a sudden failure. And I think well, you fact, could have a few that, more successes yeah. after that, that will that's, even out <clears throat> that 6% failure rate that we've seen historically. Well, now that, and that's, that's correct. And that was a well-known risk. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a European rocket. So it was well-known the satellite, although it satellite had nothing to do with, with, with the failure in this case was, was a known, you know, a known entity. So a lot of markets were willing to, to you know, uh, to, to place a big bet, right. They're, yeah. they're willing to put down a, 
a, a decent line size and, and at a very aggressive rate because it was, you know, looking at that or they're looking at that's a, a good play. I'm probably going to get that premium, but, you know, in that particular instance, it didn't work out. And yeah, so, you know, past success is no guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, as a former engineer, I like to say, because heritage is a big, mm-hmm. is a big thing in, in the space industry, but um, there's a lot of heritage hardware that has failed. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I remember back in my engineering days, even having some, some uh, arguments or discussions with, with my management on, you know, wanting to inject new technology and, and, you know, they were somewhat or, not somewhat, but but definitely reluctant to, and very resistant to do so because they didn't want to be the first to fly, you know, X, Y, Z. And, uh, you know, I would make the argument, well, you know, it's been, you know, we had a thorough test program and it's, it's, it, it's, it's ready to go. Hmm. And, you know, just because you're putting heritage doesn't, it's not, it's not a guarantee that you're not going to fail. But, right. but, you know, I think people like, well, you know, they don't want to be the first. And if something's flown before and it's failed, well, at least I have a good story. I can say, well, it's, it's flown many years, many, many times. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the space industry tends to be um, conservative that way, but um, that, you know, and that's something that the underwriters also look at, right. They're going to look at, at your margin, your heritage, your test and qual program. And, um, you know, so, but things are changing, you know, with the smaller, sats and the, and the constellations and, and things like that, that uh, you, you just really can't, you know, build them uh, and test them in the, in the same way that you did the, the, you know, the big geo sats that took, you know, that take two to three years to, to actually get out the factory door. So, um, you know, the industry is uh, in a bit of, uh, it's in a bit of flux and, you know, it's going to be, um, so, you know, as that old uh, saying is, may you live in interesting times. This is certainly very interesting times for the space industry, and the insurance is part of that. So, you know, learning to to adapt and, and adjust to the new uh, to the new paradigms that that is uh, being brought in by the by the new guys. You know, the the entrepreneurial, the the Silicon Valley, uh, you know, startups, if you will. Um, while at the same time, you know, there's still um, there's still the, the 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 tried and true, you know, the Endelsats, the SESs, the uh, you know the the large the large uh, you know the Echo Stars and Directv's out there. So I'm um, that you know going to do things much more on a I'm going to do things on a more traditional uh, type basis. So you kind of got to accommodate both of them. Now there's no international or national legal requirement to have insurance, right? It's not like for your personal car or something like that. No, I you know I would liken it to um, you know let let's take auto insurance as an example. Um, typically, you know you go buy a car and you you don't pay cash. You have a loan. Well, the the loan is going to come with some strengths. One of which is they're going to probably want insurance. They're going to want some some evidence of insurance to, uh, for the length of that loan. Now, once that's retired, you know you can decide whether or not you want to carry the first party or collision insurance. But as a, as a, as a function of getting a license, the state uh, or the licensing issuing agency probably going to require liability insurance that right. you need to protect in case you, you hurt somebody else. So that goes back to um, you know, what we were talking about earlier, where most satellite operators um, don't, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they'll, they'll get a launch license and, you know, that launch license will require certain liability for the launch. Um, but once it's up in orbit and operating, um, there's no ongoing requirement uh, in most cases for, for liability insurance. So what, what tends to happen is, 
is uh, the owner operators will, will buy um, asset insurance um, based either on their, their risk posture, you know, um, what happens if I lose a satellite and is insurance a good, a good way to, to mitigate that risk? Or if they're kind of a startup or need to, to borrow a lot of money, there may be loan covenants that dictate insurance. So um, in those cases, what we have to do is, is understand what those loan covenants are and design the policy such that it is compliant with uh, with those loan covenants. But once you know the loan is paid off, um, you know those those uh, those operators may may decide not to to continue to buy insurance. Uh, you know their constellation or their satellites are up and running, they're generating revenue, and you know they're in, in that they'll, they'll you know. You know, they'll manage whatever losses may come, and maybe they, if it's a constellation, maybe they have some extra satellites. Uh, typically, constellations will have uh, extra, you know, such that if I lose, you know, if I lose one, I can basically have a, a very graceful degradation in the overall performance of, of the constellation. Or in a geosat, um, you know, uh, some some operators decide that you know they have enough satellites in orbit that they can you know move them around a little bit if needed, um, and they're playing the the odds that that the loss of a satellite is so low that maybe their overall um, finance position is is improved by not not buying insurance and and you know when the occasional loss happens that it, in in their view maybe they're looking at it that uh, you know that that the present value of that that loss is still doesn't doesn't uh, tip the scales that they that they would you know sh that they should have bought some insurance where others have a completely different. Uh, Different uh, risk posture and decide you're going to buy buy insurance. Now maybe some buy, you know, each satellite on a on a uh, what we would call a first dollar or some sort of deductible basis where each satellite's insured. Others may look at it in an aggregate and say, all right, I've got n satellites up there, so I'll absorb the first so many dollars of loss across that that whole fleet, or you know, uh, the first n satellites that fail or whatever, and then the rest I'll transfer to. Um, the rest I will transfer to a, um, you know, to, to the insurance market. Okay. So unlike uh, many other nationally and internationally regulated components and licensed and that kind of thing, uh, requirements for these satellites, uh, there is no insurance requirement for, for space. So you could, you do need to insure to make sure your rocket doesn't take out half of a town on the way up. But once, uh, once you're in space, pay. It's a, uh, it's just free for all up there, huh? And do what you like. That's uh, despite nation states being liable for the actions of their citizens. So, very interesting. Uh, I wonder if that will change sometime in the future as more and more satellites get up there. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady. Frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on. But business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally 
fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. Well, I think part of what, what's driven that historically is, is the orbits that, that satellite go to. So mm-hmm. traditionally, the vast majority of the launches, especially for the commercial entities, um, the satellites were going to what we call, and I had said this earlier, geostationary mm-hmm. orbit. So if you look at the various orbits, when you get to 22,300 miles of altitude, and that's above the equator, um, the orbital period is 24 hours. So, hey, guess what? That means <laughs> I pretty much stay stationary over a spot. So I can move to a certain latitude, uh, longitude and, um, you know, keep it right there above the equator, uh, you know, at 22,000 miles on an equatorial orbit. And, um, you know, I'm fixed essentially from, from the person on the ground's perspective, right? If you could look up and see the satellite, it would pretty much stay fixed. Now, it, there's all kinds of gravitational forces and the Earth's not a perfect sphere and the moon's moving around and the sun and all. So there are tugs of, of force that will tend to want to move the satellite. But it's, it's manageable. And so the satellites carry fuel for station right. keeping. And so they stay in a box. So they stay in a very narrow box you know, let's say it, uh, within a half a degree or a degree or whatever, they keep them, you know, the, the operator will manage so the satellite stays in that, that fixed, uh, that sort of fixed box. And so there's a lot of, tra- if you will, uh, traffic management that's just inherent mm-hmm. in operating at that orbit. So the idea of collisions and things of that nature, it's very remote, right? Now, with the advent of more and more uh, satellites going into low Earth orbit, now, you know, you've got Mm-hmm. things move, moving relative to the earth and you've got a lot and you need a lot more satellites right because it's if i'm out in geostationary i can see a huge chunk of the globe right maybe about a third of the globe from that from that altitude is is visible right if i if i could stand on the satellite and look at the earth i'd see you know maybe, maybe a third of, of the earth so um you know three or four satellites at geostationary if i had a company and and i wanted essentially global coverage i, I could put up about four satellites and I would, you know, three, I think at the theoretical minimum, but let's say four to account for elevation uh, limitations uh, with your antenna at the earth. Um, you know, and I could, I could cover now that would be like maybe from the 70 degree North to 70 degree South, you know, the poles wouldn't get covered, but you know, who lives up there. Right. So the, the, the vast majority of the population areas, et cetera, would, would be, would be, would, would be covered with relatively few satellites. Now, if you start moving down to what we call medium, Known as NEO, MEO, or Low Earth LEO, LEO orbits, you obviously need a lot more satellites because now you have relative motion to the Earth. So um, each, you know, uh, if I'm a you know satellite operator and I want to you know provide some sort of global service, now I need a bunch of satellites. And now you're you're looking at some of these uh, proposed constellations, and they're you know what we would call mega constellations. Mm-hmm. And they're you know right now we're talking several thousand uh, satellites uh, for some of these constellations. I think I've seen one where it's up to about 12,000, right? And it's just like, it seems like it would be a, a, mani- a, a traffic management nightmare. So with the advent of some of these um, large mega constellations and, um, you know, obviously because now we're moving to, to, to lower, uh, lower Earth orbit, you know, there's, there's going to be... An- there's still a lot of space out there, but still, you know, now you have a, uh, you would, you would tend to think, wow, the probability of, of something going wrong is, is much higher. 
And um, <clears throat> you've also got the deorbit of those satellites. So at that mm -hmm. altitude, you know, the satellite will, um, you know, whether you know, either naturally decay over time, depending on on the altitude, or once it's you know it's reached the end of its service life, you know, I would have to um, deorbit it. So it put us, you know, basically slow it down a little bit, and it will start, you know interfering with the atmosphere and the atmosphere will start slowing it down, slowing it down, slowing it down until it eventually decays. Whereas the satellites out in geo, when they're done their service life, they're not, they're, they, they deorbit them, but they don't bring them back. What they do is actually push them out to a little bit higher orbit. And so they, they go above the geo arc, if you will. And then since the earth's not a sphere, they'll tend to, to gravitate towards or drift, I should say, towards the gravity wells that, that naturally exist. And so, you know, um, but they're up and out of the way. But the lower Earth orbit ones, so now you've got, you know, you've got a lot more of them. And, you know, they're going to be operating, a lot of these guys are probably three to five year satellites. So that means, mm -hmm. you know, your constellation has to be replenished every three to five years. So figure if I have a 5,000 satellite constellation and I'm replenishing it every five years, that's on average, I'm launching a thousand a year to, to replenish. And I've, it means I've got to bring a thousand back down to the Earth, right? So, mm -hmm. So, you know, even if the, even if all of them, whatever mechanism they're using for deorbiting works perfectly, you still have all this stuff coming through the atmosphere, and some of that may or may not burn up. Um, so, you know, there's still uh, the, the possibility that something could 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 come through the atmosphere, and you know, very low probability, but there's still going to be some probability that maybe it, it injures someone. So they're going to have to run through all these calculations, and you know, and kind of show that they meet uh, meet meet certain requirements and then just the whole idea of uh, you know operating these large constellations in space may require a lot more coordination of uh, you know between operators and, and just ensuring that uh, that things don't don't uh, don't collide so. right and for those curious about more information on that uh, my interview with dr. Mariba jaw will be out by the time um, this interview releases he and I talked exactly about that Bob I, I'm glad you brought up the point that well yeah we can leave something in a graveyard orbit or we can bring it down from LEO to the atmosphere and hope that it burns up but maybe it won't burn up <laughs> we'll have something falling down uh, to to the earth and um, Marie Baja is working on uh, calculations for figuring out okay where is this stuff potentially gonna land so it is, it is a topic being taken seriously by our uh, academic professionals. So Bob, Oh yeah, and you know, the, I was going, sorry, I was gonna say oh, just go the ahead. fact that yeah. the, the, the earth is largely, the surface of the earth is largely water helps. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, not, not to be too macabre, but um, the, one, the one incident that at least I'm familiar with where a, a large object came back um, over a, you know, relatively populated area was was the space shuttle coming back mm, uh, back right. in the late 90s and so that you know that left a trail of debris and there was no no damage right nothing um there were no fatalities i, I don't know how many uh, other than the, than, than the astronauts but nobody on the ground so that's kind of the only real data point in terms of a, of a large scale you know of stuff coming back that, that i'm aware of and um you know now but had that happened you know so that was over a you know Maybe you could say a relatively thinly populated swath of of the U.S., but still, rel you know, relative to a lot of the area of the Earth, pretty densely populated, and um, you know, so. Uh, but you know, at your point not to 
not to take it lightly, and that it's good that we have folks looking into, into running calculations on, on that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, Charles Radley is another fellow who I've interviewed who's looking at uh, some tracking technology, putting kind of a, a transponder chip on, on board satellites to make sure that it's easy. It's not as straightforward as you would think. The, the folks have not figured this stuff out as cleanly as you might have thought. Uh, I guess let's paint a picture, and then, and then I think we're going to be done. Um, okay. What, what does a typical contract length look like for a, for a client of yours? How many pages is it? A, is it like an <laughs> auto insurance thing, or is it a 200-page binder, or what is the final? No. Time? No, it's, it's – um, I'd say, you know – 10 to 20 pages, depending on the, uh, is probably kind of typical, you know, there's insurance has, you know, standard, uh, standard provisions, right? So it's, um, you know, it's uh, declarations, um, the insuring agreement, there's the conditions, there's exclusions, and then there's the definitions, right? So you can look at it as dice plus D, right? <laughs> so, but typically the order is, is D-I-D-C-E, right? So you start off with your declarations where you're declaring certain things. This is like any normal insurance policy. Then you have the insuring agreement. What, you know, what are the insurers agreeing to, to, you know, to insure and pay? Then there's any specific definitions. And that's really, um, especially space, since we're dealing with what we call bespoke or, or unique policies, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't really have an off the shelf. You know, it, it might be, the closest we might have to that is if somebody's coming and they just want to do what we'll call an LVFO or launch vehicle flight only. In other words, we're attaching risk and intentional ignition or launch. And once a satellite is separated, you know, um, the, 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 the risk is terminated, right? So you're just covering the, the, the ballistic phase, if you will, the, the flight of, of the launch vehicle. So, you know, the underwriters don't really need to know a whole lot about the satellite. Um, they're just going to know, you know, is there anything new or different on that launch vehicle? Is the deployment mechanism, you know, new or different? You know, maybe they'll want to know is the is the mission, you know, something that the, the the launch vehicle hasn't done before in terms of, you know, the orbit and you know what it's trying to do. But you know, but basically very straightforward. Whereas now, if you're getting into some of the um, more complex um, satellites. You may you may have half a dozen of pages just for loss definitions, just to you know because you have to sit down and create them, and then you know once you create them in terms of the mathematical, now you've got to convert that into like insurance language, and it's got to be language that is understood by the underwriters because if you get into a claim situation, you know you don't want people saying oh I didn't really understand. You know it's got to be very clear and concise, and and you know we'll go and brief them and make sure everybody fully you know fully understands. So we try to you know. Um, ferret out any any uh, claim difficulties, if you will, up front by by writing understood and clear uh, loss definitions. So there's a bit of an art to that as mm -hmm. as well. Um, um, you know, we'll negotiate it with with the clients, and they'll typically retain uh, legal counsel. And so, you know, we also as, uh, as a broker, we we uh, we establish good relationships with uh, with those with those folks who deal in space law, so that when we get into these discussions, you know, we we know the counterparty and we're, you know, they know us and we can have, have some good discussions. Um, just a little bit of humor. So just recently I was working, you know, with some of my colleagues were working on a, on a unique space risk. And so we have a, a very unique policy that we're, we're putting in place and dealing with the, um, the client and their legal counsel who, you know, um, happens to be in the DC area. So I, so I know this, this person and, um, 
and uh, she had commented on one of our calls with the client that, you know, she's kind of amazed that, you know, look, you know, 25 pages or whatever, you have all of this instead of, you know, normally we have contracts that are hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I held my tongue. I almost said that that's the reason for that is because it's not written by lawyers. But subsequent to that phone call, I did talk with this with this lawyer and I mentioned that was thinking that and, and her reaction was to laugh and say, uh, you should have said that. I, I can take it, you know? So, <laughs> so I think, so, so I think it's, you know, just, um, we try to be concise and, and, um, and, uh, you know, economical in our language and, but making sure that, you know, and so there's a lot of, a lot of the, the you know, the form of like the exclusions are all pretty standard, right? So mm-hmm. space insurance is typically what we, what we would call an all risk policy. So unless something is excluded uh, per se, it's covered. So it's not a named peril type, type okay. of policy. So there's a standard set of exclusions, which is about 10, 10 type exclusions, you know, like war, terrorism, uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a few things that, you know, electromagnetic, unless it's self-inflicted, right, is, is, uh, is, 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 you know, um, or, or causes some damage is, is, is going to be, yeah, be excluded. So there's, a, there's, you know, some standard exclusions like that. The conditions tend to be fairly standard um, from one policy to, to the next. There might be a, a few unique ones here, there, but by and large, um, fairly standard. And the declarations, while there's unique language, you know, because you're up in the declarations, you're going to have the name insured, the amount of insurance, the attachment, termination of risk. Um, there's a lot of standard or at least template uh, language that, that is used um, that, that's there. So the real unique things tend to be the insuring agreement um, and the definitions that will handle, uh, you know, the partial loss situation for, um, for that, for the particular risk. So that's, you know, that's sort of the meat of the policy and where all the, the real creative juices uh, tend to tend to come in. And then, um, you know, so that gets, you know, and then the underwriters get to see the policy and comment on it so you know um it's it's not like we just present them a a policy and say this is it you know they'll they'll have some feedback and so we try to work with the the various underwriters and incorporate their feedback uh and a lot of times you know i i'll admit that 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 is helpful it does help clarify or we we understand oh you know there there may have been some confusion here and so let's get that you know let's get that taken care of now before you know we, we actually have the policy placed and bound instead of you know arguing about it down the road when there, you know, there might be a situation for a claim. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of cooks, if you will. And when we finally get done, we have a, we have a really good product and um, then, you know, we go and, um, you know, um, get, get that uh, placed in the market and, and, uh, and uh, go from there. All right. (laughs) Did we miss anything important about space and satellite insurance? I don't know if we missed anything important um but it is as you can tell it's it's a very um relationship business a relationship-based business right so the underwriters are going to want to know yeah they're going to want to know the the technical aspects but they also want to get to know the client right who's the counterparty who are these guys and it you know and it, it's one thing if you're dealing, like I said, with the big guys, you know, like an SES and Inelsat, a, a Lockheed or Boeing, you know, the, the, these are well-known entities. But, you know, it's much and, – and, but even there, it's still important to maintain relationships and meet with, you know, each other so often and understand what's going on. And, you know, is there new technologies you're putting in? What, you know, what, what, are, what are your fleet plans coming up in terms of deployment? But it's really important with the smaller startup guys as well. 
um, to get in front of the underwriters early, even long before you, you know you're looking to buy insurance. You don't want the first time you meet some of these guys to be like, "Hey, I need some insurance from you." It's like, "Well, who are you? <laughs> you know, I've never heard of you know th- this company or that company." And what is your business case? So, you know, the it's the idea of, of building that sort of trust and relationship, right? You know, you may have great technology, but who are your you know who are you? Who, what, what, what are your backgrounds? You know, you know, you're not just a, you know, I'm speaking of the startup world. You're not just a garage band, right? You guys have been around, um, you know, you know what you're doing um, and uh, you're bringing all that experience to the table. So we want to get all of that in front of the underwriter uh, as well as, you know, the technical uh, aspects and the, the business aspects of, of the, uh, of the risk. Our topic today has been space and satellite insurance. My guest has been Bob Weirdy of Marsh, which is a full service. We've talked about the range of uh, space insurance services brokerage. And Bob, how can people get a hold of you if, if they're an operator or, a, you know, a buyer or even a manufacturer of satellites? Well, they could call me directly. Um, uh, my office number is uh, 202 263 seven eight four zero or they could uh, send me an email uh, my email is robert dot p dot Wherty, and that is spelled w-h-e-a-r-t-y at marsh m-a-r-s-h dot com all right that sounds great thanks for being here today bob well thanks for inviting me jason really enjoyed it and appreciate uh, like i said appreciate the invite you bet <laughs>